Um, somebody was just asking me about the biography that was mentioned of Herbert. It's called Music at Midnight um, by John Drury. It's now in paperback. It's really very, very good. And uh, there it is, yes, as if by magic. Um, it's, uh, I do commend it to you. And not only is it a biography of him, but it's a, it's a beautiful reading of his poem. So it's rather helpful. It comes, by the way, Music at Midnight. It comes from this story that's told of Herbert that he was on his way, I think, maybe to um, a music... He often went to play music with his friends. It's what they do in those days instead of watching Emmerdale. Uh, they'd go and uh, make music together. And uh, he was always on time and always, as I said, rather trim and looked very presentable. And what happened on the way is that he found somebody whose cart uh, had got stuck. And uh, he took off his coat and helped and pushed and the mud went all over him and all that sort of stuff. And when he got there, rather late, they sort of looked at him, you know, <laughs> erect her, looking rather dishevelled. And, and they said, you know, should you have really done that? Is it, is it a thing that sort of fits your dignity? And uh, Herbert said uh, that he knew that what he'd done would be to him as music at midnight. Almost uh, something you can reflect on uh, when you've got insomnia. But <laughs> 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 actually, that's exactly what the dignity of this might have been. Anyway, that's where the title comes from. <clears throat> um, can I just ask you what you think a friend is? What, what would your definition of a friend be? Just to get that into the air a bit. Yes. Unconditional acceptance. Unconditional acceptance. Yes. Truth telling. Yes, uh, I think it was Elizabeth at the back who once said to me, a, a friend uh, is not always welcome because uh, uh, the truth will set you free, but before it does that, it really... <laughs> I, won't, I won't tell you what she said. At that point. So tr truth-telling, but it might not always be welcome. Yeah, yeah. Loyalty. Someone who will stand by you. Stand by you. Someone who listens. Someone who listens, yes. Family you've chosen for yourself. Family you've chosen for yourself. <laughs> it's not the one you've inherited. Love. love. Good company. Good company. I was going to say love too. Somebody who will be honest. Sorry? Somebody who will be honest with you. Somebody who will be honest with you. Yes. And there's one of the Fellow sufferer. Fellow sufferer. <laughs> Have you just described God? <laughs> is that your image of God? Yes. That's the question that we'll be keeping in the air. Um, I think if Herbert were here now, in a funny sort of way I feel he is, but if Herbert's here now, he would have said, yeah, that's good. <coughs> Everything you've just said. Would Herbert have thought of God as a physical person, like the old man in the clouds or something like that, that were asked to believe? Or, or was it just God was something that was part of his life, which he couldn't define in a physical way. I think for, for Herbert, I mean, we can't certainly guess anybody's view of it. <clears throat> I would say that God for Herbert was reality. Right. And we fear God, not because God is out to get you, but because God is real. And we're not all the time. And to get to being real, we have to work at it. And sometimes it needs God to step in and pull you up. And that's what happens in the poems. God's rather irritating in these poems, frankly. Because God sort of steps in and says, wait a minute. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll see that over and over again. But I think for him, uh, it was the most real reality. And our trouble is that we're often not. Yes. Can I ask what the thinking at the time was, just On, to put it in context? Well, of course, it was an ex I mean, this is what's fascinating about these poems, is that they were coming out of a cauldron of religious debate. Calvinism, Reformation, uh, you know, had, had already begun, of course. But uh, Luther, uh, where would the Church of England position itself between Rome and Geneva? All these debates were very much in the air, pure, you know, and... 
a lot of people, well, of course, scholars differ on, on all this, but most people would say that he was very influenced by a Calvinist understanding, but very much has an emphasis on grace. I tell you, I was going to throw this in a bit later, but I think it's right to do it now. One of the most extraordinary things for me is if you take his historical context, is that in his poems, he never mentions hell once. Interesting, isn't it? Do you expect hell to pop up? <laughs> um, well, let's just... Okay, I, I like going off script. Let's, let's look why it might not be there. Let's look at page um, one. <clears throat> Sorry? No, 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 no. No, he doesn't. It's not a hectoring style, is it? You do not feel... If any finger is wagging in Herbert, it's at himself. It's not at you. And I think that that makes us a little bit less defensive. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a bit like me, <laughs> as a way. Yeah. His discipline. <clears throat> now, of course, if you know you're just about to um, read a poem about God or the church or you know, some vicar's just about to tell you about a poem about God and you read discipline what do you think straight away? You think yes, yes you think uh, you know out with the lash and uh, putting you know purgatory and all those sort of things okay you think of application application not rigidity not rigidity okay Okay, well, let's see what happens. Here, here's his title, Discipline. Throw away thy rod, throw away thy wrath. O oh my God, take the gentle path. For my heart's desire unto thine is bent. I aspire to a full consent. Not a word or look I affect to own, but by book, and thy book alone. Though I fail, I weep. Though I halt in pace, yet I creep to the throne of grace. Then let wrath remove. Love will do the deed. For with love, stony hearts will bleed. Love is swift of foot. Love's a man of war and can shoot and can hit from far. Who can escape his bow? That which wrought on thee, brought thee low, needs must work on me. Throw away thy rod, though man frailties hath, thou art God. Throw away thy rod. Now there's someone talking to a friend. What, what's your response to that You creep to the throne. Yes. You like that? Is your life a bit of a creep? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say are you a creep. <laughs> Is that how faith sometimes feels? It's a slow creep to, <laughs> to the throne of grace. Yes. Love achieves. Yes. Now that's that's what's interesting, isn't it? The word discipline. How best should God discipline? By punishment or by love? And, uh, I mean, the, the answer's pretty sure here is what Herbert thinks. Um, what's intriguing is the tone of the poem. This is serious stuff, but almost in a sort of banter with God. It's sort of, God... Come on, take the gentle path, please. <coughs> um, we're frail, you know, you're God. Uh, we're doing our best. He, he says, you know, unto thine, my, uh, my heart's desire unto thine is bent. I aspire to a full consent. I'm trying here. I am creeping, you know. So, you know, back off a bit, <laughs> sort of idea. I think it's quite a daring poem. Um, how would this go in your Sunday service? 
Uh, if you suddenly said, let us pray. God, stop being so nasty. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I was just, because um, I've got two little boys and one of them is quite nasty. I don't know where he gets that from. Um, I've been thinking about this quite a lot and um, finding the balance. And just, I just wanted something that sort of unraveled the, you know, the feeling of that word for me is, is uh, you know, the disciple comes from, you know, the etymology of the word. The Quite. same, thank you. Uh, you know, it's about teaching. Yes. Yeah, to try and reframe that for myself. So, disciple and discipline. Yes. Very close. And who is being disciplined here? I mean, it's almost as if Herbert is telling God to discipline God's self a bit. You know, hold yourself back here. Discipline in a different way. But you, meant, you mentioned the Reformation. Yeah. Um, in a sense, it's also a criticism of the church because if the church, say the Catholic Church, for example, the dogma, feel it represents God in people's lives and it's throwing rods and disciplines, and he's also saying, throw away thy rod because you've got, and it's almost like sort of the Lutheran approach of saying, God is for you personally, God's grace is for you personally. And that's what we creep towards in our lives. And of course, there's an emphasis here on grace. Yeah. So although he's creeping, <laughs> and look at the form of the poem, there's a little creep in that. Yeah. You've got two little lines, and then, oh, it's, they've taken two steps forward. Oh my God, I aspire, but by book, yet I creep, for with love... You know, those words are, are, are creeping ahead. So even the form is trying to get somewhere. <coughs> Nevertheless, the end of the poem is saying, you know, even you, God, <laughs> even you've been struck by love's arrow. And I find this a very striking image. It's almost as if, and forgive me, I'm a Shropshire boy, so I'm going to use a country image here. It's almost as if he's saying... The arrow, you know, was struck in God's heart and like a pheasant he fell to earth and his heart, you know, and, and it's called his son. It, it hit his own heart and he felt, it says, it brought thee low. Who can escape his bow? That which wrought on thee, you know, brought thee low needs must work on me. So, it worked on you, God. Look what happened. Your love made you fall to the ground in incarnation. And now it must work on me. So, if that's how it works, throw away your wrath. Um, thou art God. And as I say, there's no hell here. Uh, for God to show wrath more than love would be too much like a human is how it's ended you know you're God you're not like us we, we might take it out on one another we might get angry with one another you're a bit better than that <laughs> yeah but it's also the sense the reformation sense that we should concentrate more on the New Testament than on the old but, I mean Luther thought that translating the New Testament into the vernacular was more important than translating the Old Testament, and that's where it started. And I think there was this beginning, realizing that the the God in the Old Testament is so utterly unlikable that you need to look at the more loving aspect of God. And what it's saying, of course, at the end of the poem is that it's not so much about my creeping it's about what happened to you that you came to us love struck you and this is what happened so we rely on that yeah. he was a classical scholar yes. so this would this be an illusion taken from the, the Cupid yes, absolutely. Um, and his deadly dance yes, yes, I think he's saying God is a victim of Cupid yes mm -hmm. It's quite interesting because it's it so associated with secular love. 
Yes. I love that idea that God, God's a victim of Cupid too. <laughs> and, and what does that mean, of course? If you really believe, and it, there's no answer to this, so this is a rhetorical question, <laughs> but if you are a lover, can you do anything? Are you powerful when you're a lover? Or are there things you can't do because you love? What's, so what sort of God actually is this friend? We always say, Almighty God, is somebody who loves almighty, or are they restricted? Do they also become a victim? Depends if you think God loves us all, yes. then he's got to be almighty, because he's got to include us all in that love, and that mm. sort of, which is, I suppose, the artistic impression we yes. have of God on his throne, or whatever yes. position we have of him. Mm-hmm. And, and that, because that's all-inclusive, and for a love to be all-inclusive is... Is huge. Yeah. Yes. I also think that love can be hell, and yes, it can be the most profound sense of powerlessness too. If anyone's watched a loved one suffer, uh, a loved one with an illness, for example, yeah. that sense of impotence and powerlessness yeah. is like no other, um, or grief, you know. And it's very interesting, I don't, and you'll be able to point out all the ways I've got this wrong today, but I don't get a very strong sense in his poems that the almighty, all-powerfulness of God is something that Herbert is finding magnetic. It's, it's more about the love, the grace, the, the being of God, uh, rather than his Zeus-like nature. <laughs> It's vulnerability, love making you vulnerable. Now, what that does to your perceptions of God is very interesting because I think we, we have that very strong sense that God is capable of doing anything. But of course, in many traditions, he is capable of doing everything, but does love restrict that capability? I just think it's worth reading between the lines sometimes with Herbert here. I think just thinking what the lady over there was saying about <coughs> children, I think sometimes yes. you think about children, you think as they grow older, you think well, you could say to them, you must. Yes. But you, you, because of love, yes. you withhold that. Yes. Because the relationship develops in a different way yeah. and they have to grow. And so you, you have the authority in a way, but you choose not to use it because of love. <laughs> Throw away thy wrath. Throw away thy wrath. Mm. Yeah. So, um, when R.S. Thomas put together a group of um, Herbert poems in a collection, he actually wrote in the uh, preface that Herbert demonstrates the possibility and desirability of a friendship with God. That's what Thomas was reading there. And we have our thoughts, and we've just been listening to some of them, about <coughs> friendship, about friends, about what they mean, what they achieve for us and in us. I'm not talking here, by the way, about those sort of 600 of them you have on Facebook. Um, I'm talking about the one or two who've changed your lives. Uh, maybe at some cost to you both, because you've been truth-telling or, or whatever. Those people who know your frustrations, your angers, your humilities and motivations. Um, I suppose my definition of a friendship is some, somebody in whom all my loose ends find a home. <laughs> and I think you get that sense in Herbert he knows his loose ends well, he knows a lot of them and yet somehow he can take them home to God and God's not going to think the less of him he might correct him he might take his hand but he's not going to reject him I think that's a very different sense than what you get from John Donne who is sort of slightly worried about how this is going to work out with God, this relationship. Um, and I look at him every day in the Isle of St. Paul's and effigy, and he, you know, because it's him on his resurrection day, John Dunn, he's got this slight smug look on his face. <laughs> he pulled it off at last. But with Herbert, I don't think you get that sense. I think you feel, actually, this relationship is secure. 
so we can afford to be honest. Um, there is a bravery, I think. Somebody was talking about you know, the courage of, of, of truth-telling in, in, in a friend. And I think there is a bravery in a lot of the, of the imagery here uh, in his poems and his, the way that he speaks to God. Um, and uh, I thought what we'll do now is look at uh, a quite a famous <coughs> poem called The Pulley, which is on page 13. Because this is about how the friendship begins. So I'm taking you back to the beginnings of, of the friendship with God. The pulley. When God at first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches which dispersed lie contract into a span. So, strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honour, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me and rest in nature, not the god of nature. So both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. <laughs> so true. <laughs> like that. <laughs> How many of you know this poem already? Three of you do. Um, responses to it? Is this very, it's this amazing way in which he says in such a, a simple way something yes. so yes. complicated. Exactly. Um, and you can't quite work out how he brings that trick off. Yeah. It's a bit like the Churchill thing, isn't it? I would have written you a longer letter, a shorter letter if I'd had more time. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, you have to spend a lot more time being simple. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and a classical. Uh, illusion that was brought up here. There is one here, is there not? Augustine. There's Augustine um, about um, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. But there's also a classical illusion, I think, of Pandora's box. Yes. Uh, Sorry, it's also a very modern obsession, isn't it, that we, we are very restless. Restless. And constant articles about telling us what to do, mindfulness, all this stuff. Yes. It's, it's, it's a constant. Yes. And I love, thank you for bringing that up, because there is, there is a concentration, isn't there, about our restlessness and how we can sort of find quick fixes to sort of tune it in. And this is implying that actually it ain't going anywhere, really. That's been given to you for a reason. And this is something I wanted to say, that spirituality at the moment is often talked about as if it's something that's very comforting. And, you know, it's, it's listening to the plight of the beluga whale when you're having a massage. And, having <laughs> and, and smelling a nice smell and, and being kind to yourself. Spirituality I get from this and from the other metaphysical poets is mm -mm. spirituality is awful because it's an assault on your ego. That's why restlessness is there. Not so that you can find the best masseur, but that actually so your ego can be diminished. Because you're, you know, you're going to be more yourself when you're not selfish. That's a very uncontemporary view of spirituality, but 
it does tie in with psychotherapy, actually. How can we find you in all this? Yeah. Anything else about this? Yes. There's also a suggestion that um, God needs our friendship as much as we need his. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? Both should losers be. You know, if they rest in nature and not in the God of nature, they're going to lose out. So am I. Well, a nice few, really. Actually, God cares about this. And, uh, so it's not just enough to rest in what's there. You've got to work out what created that in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. The source. The source. The source. Uh, and uh, I love, the course, again, the play. Let them have the rest. <laughs> rest? That's what it's all about, isn't it? Restlessness. Let them have the rest, but have restlessness. So let them have wisdom, honour, pleasure, all that. Uh, lovely puns again. Yes. Yeah. Toss. Toss is so unexpected, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, he does use the unexpected word occasionally, I think. Which really sort of weariness is like a wave into my breast. Yes, heaves him onto the shore like poor old somebody um, in the tempest. Yes, Jonah. Yes, toss him to my breast. Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right to bring in Augustine. I think he was a great fan of Augustine. Augustine was Herbert's favourite theologian. The idea that uh, um, our hearts are restless till they rest in God is very much at the heart of this poem. I think. Can I just say, it made me think the weariness. It's like it's like we don't make our way to him, but like on a sea, the sea almost tosses. Yes. You know, so mm. it mm. it's um, you know, we've almost given up and we're kind of lying limp, and the sea sort of yes throws us. Yes, the ocean of of, of circumstance will toss us onto God's shore. In a way. That was rather poetic, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I must write that down. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think, that's, I think that's absolutely right. The other story that comes to my mind when I read this is the prodigal son, where he, he goes off to have all those things. Wonderful time. Yes, wonderful time. <clears throat> and then falls on hardship and there's a restlessness that makes him want to turn around. And he's tossed on his father's breast, isn't he? His father's already halfway out to meet him. That's another tossing onto the breast. Just a hug would do. <laughs> yeah. Is there something of the rich man and Lazarus? Yes. In terms of resting in the bosom of Abraham? Yes, I think that is, yes. I love that sort of being tossed into, into, into the breast. Um, do you find this, what, what, if you like this poem... <laughs> What is it that that works for? Really thought-provoking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thought for yourself. Yeah. So much of sort of well, raised in public school tradition, the Anglican Church, mm. that we are told that um, you, you go and be careful of beauty and you know all these <laughs> things like wisdom, honour, pleasure. Ah. You know, just be very careful. Yeah. Uh, very. And yet this wonderful outpouring of generosity and richness which God used for us. Yes. This is a recklessly yes. generous God. A glass of blessings yes. was standing by. Yes, and it was a glass. It wasn't yeah. just yeah, yeah. tap water. Yeah, not tap water. <laughs> Why do you think it's called the poem? Ah. Yes. You tell me. Well, I've never heard. I know this poem really well. Why do you think it's called Well, a pulley is a mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. I know what and I, th- I th- but I think, well, he's been tossed, he's been pulled back to God by restlessness. This is the mechanism which God will use to to get us closer. And is it not something to do with the seesaw? Well, there's a lot of seesawness in this relationship, isn't there? Yeah. It's like one of those gondolas being pulled up the mountain. Yeah, and. Uh, basically creep up the mountain until you get at the top. Yep. Yes. Between being rich and weary, being rich is very important today, isn't it? The Western world. Rich and weary. 
rich and weary can't can't yeah. say it. Yes, it's a lovely description of of 21st century <laughs> in the West. Anyway, uh, I think it's a description of depression too. Depression. The way so the one is drawn back. Yes. Okay. The how to explain rich and weary, um, the weariness, the heavy weight of depression. Yes, calling you back. And which is the only answer. Yes. It's almost as if restlessness is the compass in you that, that knows the way home. Mm. And that's, that's something which I don't think... You know, a lot of people have a sense that us, you know, people who are either religious or interested in it, are are fueled by our certainties. Mm. This is not this. Mm. This is showing we're fueled by our restlessness, mm. our sense of trying to find the way. Mm. And that's a very different understanding. It's one I respond to better. Mm. Uh, yeah. I like the last two lines. If goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss into my breast. So yes, it's, yes, yes, like grace, like grace. Yeah. Okay, let's. You're you're responding well. I like it. Interesting repining restlessness. Yes, repining restlessness. What? Tell me why that might be important. Well, there are two meanings for repining. Yes. One is longing. Yes. And the other is you're on your easy chair with your feet up and your glass of wine. Yes. Is it? Yes. Uh, it's almost as if you discover your restlessness when you're not distracted. So you, when you're repining, you're just alone in a room with yourself. Now what? I feel. But, but I can distract myself from it up to a point, but then... When I'm back in my little room by myself? <sighs> no. I think Herbert's poems do that quite a lot. They, they take you into a furnitureless room and they say, Who are you? And there's a lot of that. That sense of being made to stone a land alone in an empty room. Right, good. This is making my life so much easier. You don't know when people respond to a poem like that. If you had nothing to say, we could have been a long time today. Let, you like the poem, so let's look at another one. Uh, let's look at the flower, which is a bit longer. <coughs> Trying to find it. You say seven. Yes, page seven. You remember that I told you that this one was underneath the poem he called The Cross. <clears throat> how fresh, O oh Lord, how sweet and clean are thy returns, even as the flowers in spring, to which, besides their own demean, the late past frosts tributes of pleasure bring. Grief melts away like snow in May, as if there were no such cold thing. Who would have thought my shriveled heart could have recovered greenness? It was gone quite underground as flowers depart to see their mother root when they have blown. Were they together all the hard weather dead to the world keep house unknown? These are thy wonders, Lord of power, killing and quickening, bringing down to hell and up to heaven in an hour, making a chiming of a passing bell. We say amiss this or that is, thy word is all, if we could spell. Oh, that I once past changing were, fast in thy paradise, where no flower can wither. Many a spring I shoot up fair, Offering at heaven, growing and groaning thither. Nor doth my flower want a spring shower, my sins and I joining together. 
But while I grow in a straight line, still upwards bent, as if heaven were mine own, thy anger comes, and I decline. What frost to that? What pole is not the zone where all things burn, when thou dost turn and the least frown of thine is shown? And now, in age, I bud again. After so many deaths, I live and write. I once more smell the dew and rain and relish versing. O oh, my only light, it cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempests fell all night. These are thy wonders, Lord of love, to make us see we are but flowers that glide, which when we once can find and prove, thou hast a garden for us where to bide, who would be more, swelling through store, forfeit their paradise by their pride. Coleridge, who I told you um, said that helped, Herbert helped him with his self-contempt, thought this was a delicious herb, that's the word he called it. He thought it was especially affecting. Uh, he thought that there was a great sincerity and uh, reality about this poem. And I'm, I'm just wondering, it's a slightly more difficult poem, it's a bit longer. How do we respond to this? It's late. It's certainly looking at uh, <coughs> a complex relationship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be much more depression. Yes. There is an author, and I can't remember who it is, who wrote about her depression, and her book is called Snowy May. Yes. And I can't remember what her name is. Yes, yeah, so... It seems to me to speak to depression. Do you feel there's a, a harder darkness in this? When, 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 yeah. when the tempests come, that this is quite, quite bleak. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And again, remember, it's placed under the cross. This reality is placed. Yeah. Almost as if somebody's gone through a crisis. Did George Herbert suffer any crises in Yeah. Did he? Yeah. Well, this being lost in a humble way. Uh, he mentions hell. Yes, he mentions hell, but not as a... Uh, Concept. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it is hell, as you were saying. There, there can be hell in this... Life and uh, I think this is he's giving voice to this here. It's uh, a real picture of personal grief. Yes, I mean, like bereavement. Uh, yes, that process. I love the line that always strikes me is, "Who would have thought my shriveled heart could have recovered greenness?" Uh, and you, that's a question I'm left with, isn't it? Quite often, is if it was so bleak, can hearts recover their greenness? Yeah. This, actually, this poem gave me great hope. Mm. And now in age, I bud again. Yes. Being my age, I thought, well, that's lovely, I can bud again. Are you blossoming at the back? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a hopeful poem. Do people agree with that? Yes. Yes? Well, I don't know, because the last um, section on page 7, called The Turnover, mm. Uh, but while I grow in a straight line, still upwards bent, as if heaven were mine own, yes. um, Diana comes and I decline. It's a sort of put down, isn't it? The moment I get a little bit too above myself, yes. Yes. I slip. Yes. And I go back to where I... But then there's that, and now in age I bud again, after so many deaths... Do you know that book, book by Richard Rohr called Falling Upward? Yes. That idea that I have to fall in order to uh, ascend, as it were. I, and I love this, and I think this is a very autobiographical part. He relishes versing. Yes. Writer's blocks gone. <laughs> He's back 
He can smell the dew and the rain. And of course, isn't this whole poem in a way about dew and rain? Dew about dawns and hopes and water, nourishment on the ground and rain that, that hits the soul. Sometimes when you talk to people about relationships and they're facing a problem, they sometimes think that actually the original definition of that relationship is the one that should be sticking it because they've gone away from it. Yes. Uh, they're feeling down. And actually saying, well, accept that relationships and life are in stages. And then let's work out at which stage you are and you move on. Yeah. And in this sense, this is what Herbert is describing yeah. here, a life of stages which moves on towards greenness, as you were saying. And in that last verse, two words that rhyme, glide and bide. Glide means impermanent, moving. Bide means stay. stay. And that's why this, I think, is friendship. That there's movement and change, and yet you're always still at home. Yeah. It's okay. okay. And then the last three verses, do they relate back to me going in a straight line, seeking to cross heaven as my own? Yes. But then forfeiting it through pride. Yes, I think so. Ah, my only light, it cannot be that I am here on whom my tempest fell. I can't believe. I mean, you could say that that's Christ after the crucifixion. You know, there's some people think that the verse in here, the voice in a lot of Herbert's poems could be that of Christ speaking. Um, you know, could it be that I'm the one on whom tempest fell all night because these are thy wonders, you know, thou hast a garden for us where to bide, the resurrection garden. So the last line, of course, is a, is a summary, really, is that paradise is there, but you will forfeit it by pride. Uh, and that, of course, is the whole Genesis story. I want to look, before the um, uh, our lunch break, I want to look at one more uh, poem that looks at this sort of to-and-fro-ness of, of the friendship, uh, and then I want to look at one that's slightly more... Uh, not hopeful, but um, is a, of a different type. Let's look at um, let's look at the pearl. That's page nine. <laughs> now, this I think is probably autobiographical, and I told you about his his uh, desire to pursue the courtly, worldly ways, and then to have a rethink. And I I think that might be in the background. The pearl. Um, this is Matthew 13, uh, verse 45 to 6, which I'm sure you know instantly, is the man who sells everything in order to buy the pearl of great price. I know the ways of learning, both the head and pipes that feed the press and make it run. What reason hath from nature borrowed, or of itself, like a good huswife, spun in laws and policy. What the stars conspire, what willing nature speaks, what force by fire, both the old discoveries and the newfound seas, the stock and surplus, cause and history, all these stand open, or I have the keys, yet I love thee. I know the ways of honour, what maintains the quick returns of courtesy and wit, in vice of favours, whether party gains, when glory swells the heart and mouldeth it to all expressions, both of hand and eye, which on the world a true love knot may tie, and bear the bundle wheresoe'er it goes. How many drams of spirit there must be to sell my life unto my friends or foes. Yet I love thee. I know the ways of pleasure, the sweet strains, the lullings and the relishes of it, the propositions of hot blood and brains, what mirth and music mean, 
what love and wit have done these twenty hundred years and more. I know the projects of unbridled store. My stuff is flesh, not brass. My senses live and grumble oft that they have more in me than he that curbs them being wantified. Yet I love thee. I know all these and have them in my hand. Therefore not sealed, but with open eyes I fly to thee and fully understand both the main sale and the commodities. <coughs> and at what rate and price I have thy love with all the circumstances that may move. Yet through the labyrinths, not my grovelling wit, but thy silk twist let down from heaven to me did both conduct and teach me how by it to climb to thee. This is not a very well-known poem. This is not in the anthologies, but often it's why, one reason I wanted to bring it here. It's because I think it's worth spending time. Do people like it? Yes. Uh, this is, for me, Herbert casting off the world whilst also recognising its appeal. Uh, there's an acknowledgement of, of all this glass of blessings that is standing by, and yet, and yet I love thee. What's your response to this? Why do you like this poem? It reminded me of Aristotle's The Black Field. The Bright Field. The Bright Field. Do people know the, the Bright Field where you stand aside from the. you acknowledge the burning bush, the presence of God? Human. The nearness. It's also about choices and sacrifices. It's about the choices you make in life and the sacrifices which might need to follow. Um. He's accepting that they're part and parcel of life. You've got to live with them and through them. But at the end of the day, you've got God at the end that if you look for God <coughs> you've got to look for God and what I've tried to show this morning is that when he says things like yet I love thee let's not get too romantic about that it's not sort of oh I love thee and, you know, it's, awful, it's lovely this is I love thee and it involves all those things we've been looking at complaint doubt, despair so when he says I love thee, it almost chokes me up because I think because it has the yes yeah, I, I think you do <laughs> at great cost sometimes yeah. it breaks in somehow yeah. doesn't it speak very clearly to the modern world and say a bit more the ways of learning. There's a, a poem he, uh, he, he wrote called A Wreath, which I think I've put in the collection, where he talks about the crooked, winding ways wherein I live. Uh, it's almost as if he's in a labyrinth, and he mentions it at the end. Yet through the labyrinths, and uh, Elizabeth is a great labyrinth aficionado, uh, this idea, uh, it's again another classical illusion, Ariadne, remember? Uh, the thread that guided Theseus to safety. Here is God, uh, you know, letting down the silk twist down from heaven to me so that I can somehow get through this labyrinthical life and follow the thread. Yeah. What struck me about that was that the silk twist is always there. Yes. Whether it's whether we find it or not yes. and have the courage to follow it, but it is always there. And that's what I felt was so hopeful about that verse. Yes. It is a hopeful verse, isn't it? But it's a delicate one too. Delicate, yeah. Right. Silk. The thread is so delicate. Silk. Right. It's not a rope. <laughs> it's a silk thread. It's almost an antecedent of proof rock. 
Uh, yeah. I have known them all. I've donated uh, them yes. all. I have seen them. And, uh, yes. and yet, acknowledging all the sort of daily things of life, and yet at the end, he's clinging on to something which he feels is greater. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear my trousers rolled. Dare I eat a peach? <laughs> Wonderful. You'll find that out in ten minutes' time. Dare I eat a peach? <coughs> um, the propositions of hot blood and brains. What about this? the end of the third verse? My stuff is flesh, not brass. Now, I often think that, that we... When I say Christians are not always at their best when they're best behaviour, we can talk sometimes as if we're not human flesh, that we are brass. And that's what people don't find very appealing quite often. But here it is. He's saying, my senses live and grumble off that they have more in me than he that curbs them being but one to five. I think that means there are five senses. And there's one reason. And sometimes reason can't curb them. <laughs> one to five. There are five of them and one of him. Of course they're going to win. Yet, I love thee. It's the renunciation, isn't it? Yes. That's everything that he's been grown up. Yeah. He's grown up to expect yeah. and to be part of. Yeah. And he acknowledges that they're very attractive. Yeah. Yet, I love thee. Yet, I love thee. That, that word, yet appears quite a lot in Herbert. Daily conversion. This is partly also about priesthood. Like he's the seller, and I know, this is what I'm saying, I know the ways of pleasure, he knows them all. Uh, but my stuff is flesh, not brass. So how do I relate to what I'm trying to sell? And in, in that sense, as a priest, do people come to get could be. Um, I, I, for me, for me, it's a sort of poetic form of uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. You've got all the rest. But what is the greatest? Yet I love thee. Yeah. Like the use of the word groveling, groveling wit. I mean, yeah. wit's much, there's a lot to that word, isn't there? Yes, the idea that wit is something we're groveling with. Yes, almost trying to please each other so that I can have more praise or more self-confidence. Yes, wit, of course, meaning wisdom. Not yes, exactly, not conversation. Yeah. To me, um, coming back to flesh, not grass, is that um, well, maybe says more about me, but you know, I was thinking about it the other day, sort of flesh and blood and the, and the magical qualities we, we attribute to each other and ourselves and these kind of unrealistic expectations and they're just sort of coming back to yes. humanity. Yes. Yes. Um, we haven't got much time, but I do want to look at one last uh, I'm not going to take you through it someday, but I'm do look at it sometime on page 25. Just look, look at the first verse and you'll see this image again. And I love this image. Any of you who have to preach uh, out there might use it on uh, Pentecost. And I'm just going to read the first verse of this before I look at the final poem for this morning. Listen, sweet dove, unto my song, and spread thy golden wings in me, hatching my tender heart so long till it get winged and fly away with you. I love that idea that your heart is being hatched. It's desperately trying to break out the shell. Uh, and, uh, and it will fly away with God. Um, it's, it's rather like that uh, story of um, St. Kevin, who was praying with his open hands and the blackbird came and hatched in his open hands so prayer was nurturing a new life I think that image of God hatching something fresh in him is, is very there in all the poems actually most of them anyway let's look at Easter on page 15 
because when you talked to me about friendship, you were talking about honesty, about sharing pain, about pain bearers, about uh, you know the, the difficult times. But there are also, of course, the joys of friendship. And I want to end this morning looking at one of these. And I think you find this in Easter. And many of you will know it if you know your anthems and uh, Vaughan Williams. Um, Rise, heart, thy Lord is risen. Sing his praise without delays. Who takes thee by the hand, that thou likewise with him mayst rise. That as his death calcined thee to dust, his life may make thee gold and much more just. Awake, my lute, and struggle for thy part with all thy art. The cross taught all wood to resound his name who bore the same. His stretched sinews taught all strings what key is best to celebrate this most high day. <clears throat> Consort both heart and lute and twist a song pleasant and long. Or since all music is but three parts vied and multiplied, <coughs> O let thy blessed spirit bear a part and make up our defects with his sweetheart. I got me flowers to straw thy way, I got my boughs off many a tree, but thou wast up by break of day and broughtest thy sweets along with thee. The sun rising in the east, though he give light and the east perfume, if they should offer to contest with thy arising, they presume. Can there be any day but this? Though many suns to shine endeavour, we count three hundred, but we miss. There is but one, and that one ever. Response to this, a different tone here in the friendship. <clears throat> a line which you will know if you know love three in the third line he takes thee by the hand mm. Herbert often has this image that God takes you by the hand mm. he doesn't throw you down or slap you with it he takes mm. you by the hand mm. again I think it's a, a friend God mm. and it always reminds me of those eastern orthodox uh, um, icons of Easter where Jesus is standing on a very precarious looking bridge with lots of padlocks that are usually being forced open and down there is this little man and down here is this little woman and Jesus is pulling them out of their hell it's Adam and Eve by the way remember the last time we saw them they were blaming each other mm. oh no she told me to deny you down in their hells, and Jesus is there on this bridge, <coughs> reintroducing them to one another. Saying, and he takes them by the hand. Uh, that always comes to my mind. When I read it. Uh, there was a lovely story I heard once, I think, on the radio. Children were asked what they thought Christ had done. The first thing he did after his resurrection, and one child said, he went down to hell to rescue his friend Judas. Judas, yes, yes, indeed, yeah. <laughs> of course, the other thing is is the music here that uh, he's he's thinking of lutes 
stringed instruments. And then he switches to the idea that the cross is like a stringed instrument, where Christ, as it were, was being stretched on wood like the strings. And the, and the song that was being played on the cross was more beautiful than them all. You get this in Horace Thomas, where he talks about the musician, Chrysler playing, and he, he talks about uh, God on the cross being the music that God listens to. And I think that he, his stretched sinews taught all strings what key is best. Very striking image, I think. And then he talks about, oh, let thy blessed spirit bear a part. A part is, is a line in polyphony. Mm-hmm. I.e., here we are, all with our different voices. Come in, please. Mm-hmm. Play your part and make up our defects. You know, come and sing with us. Great encouragement to those who can't sing very well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> with lots of defects. Literally or Yeah. Um, It's the basis of harmony, the triad, um, the common chord. It's made of three. And of course, there's a Trinitarian overlay to it. Um, Yeah. But there is but one, and that one ever. So we have, he says, we count 300, 365 actually, but we miss there is but one, and that one ever. So in all this busyness, the world turning, my soul turning, my emotions chaotically going up and down, there is one, and that one, ever, who takes me by the hand. And I think that God is very much his friend. It's time to eat. Thank you for listening.